I love you. everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. Uh, but that's not what I heard. I heard you're changing your name to Laura Palmer. Wait, what? Because <laughs> I feel like I haven't seen you in 25 fucking years. <laughs> oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a... It's been, uh... We we watched uh, the first Utter Alive movie, and then when we were supposed to watch the second one, that was like the beginning of you. Was that not the day? I, well, the day the day we were supposed to watch Dead or Alive two, I went to the fucking emergency room. Yeah, <laughs> I'm uh, fine, listeners. Uh, basically, I had called a doctor, and they were like, "Ooh, this sounds serious. You should go to the emergency room." The emergency room is like, "Ah, it's not that serious." And then I went and saw my primary care guy a couple days later and he was like man if you hadn't called on a friday night we probably would have just come in and seen you and told you this was not that serious uh but unfortunately i had to make this phone call at like 8 p.m on a friday and so someone just told me go to the emergency room yeah sucks um glad it's not serious the 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 thing that you have especially once you got like the you know, talk to your primary care. I was like, oh, Emily had this exact same experience. Oh, that makes me feel better. Yeah. Uh, Of like, just very like bad feeling pain where you get very worried, but actually it's 
it's not a horrible thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still sucks. It sucks to like feel that. Yeah. Um, but honestly, but it's the, not you're the, dying. <laughs> the pain, the thing about having pain in my chest is that having pain in my chest is not nearly as bad as worrying, oh, this means I have a heart condition now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. That's the thing about chest pain is that chest pain, not nearly as bad as thinking I could drop dead any minute. Yeah. Like, it's still a bad pain. Uh-huh. But also just, like, the location of the pain makes you extra worried. Yeah, um, exactly. In a way where, like, if you had that pain in your leg, you would still maybe be concerned, but in a different way. I would still call a doctor, but I would have waited yeah. till Monday, you know? Yeah. Or if you have it in your stomach, you're just like, well, I ate something fucked. <laughs> 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 Unless it, like, really persists. Yeah. Um. um so... That I'm looking at my letterboxd. We watched Dead or Alive. The other thing that happened then is I was gone for a week. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, as you were recovering, basically. Yeah. Um, I got on a train overnight, uh, 17 hours, and went to D.C. for Emily's brother's wedding. Um, So, yeah. And we are... Recording this remote now because uh, that big heavy sigh. I have to be on a plane on Thursday. <laughs> yeah, which is terrifying. I, I'm like not feeling bad or anything, but I I did go to a wedding, uh, which I wasn't the happiest about. The size of that wedding uh, ended up being, and um, and I decided today because we thought about recording in person, and then I realized. The last thing I need is for like, if you saw, if you got COVID, you know we're both mm-hmm. super vaxxed and boosted and everything. But if you got COVID, what would happen is I would start having symptoms while I was in Arizona, <laughs> and yeah. getting on the plane going there, but not being able to get on the plane and come home is my nightmare. <laughs> so <laughs> we're playing yeah. it as cautious as possible. Yeah, like the the wedding was outside. Uh, most of the like inside stuff, obviously, slams when you're eating. I, you can't constantly have the mask on, but um, mm. those were like smaller events. Uh, that was like more wedding party family stuff. Um, but like the actual wedding was outside on a rooftop. Mm. Uh, but still, just trying to be cautious, not get you sick if yeah. I am sick. Yeah, probably not sick. Probably fine. Yeah. But you know. I felt good with the traveling because we got a sleeper car. So we were just like in our own little room. Mm-hmm. We got like the family room, uh, which was not that big considering like it was me, Emily and a toddler for 17 hours. But like enough that we could kind of spread out a little, you know, it's it's like not just three chairs. It's like, right. I, I would say like five or six chairs, maybe mm-hmm. worth of seating space. Um yeah, but and being in that felt a little bit more secure because we're not like around other people. Um, yeah, and we still wore a mask a lot. Yeah. So I'm looking at my letterbox. Yeah, we watched Ricky O on August fifth. Mm-hmm. We God. watched 
Today is August 23rd. Yeah. We watched Dead or Alive August 10th. First of all, mm-hmm. I have I have seen one, two, three, four, five movies between August 10th and now. But second of all, I, like I just look at June and July and May and I'm like, I've only seen five movies. I'm out of the movie zone. Like the movie, like the, <laughs> it will come back. I will re-enter the movie zone sooner or later. But August has been a, a slow month of movie watching for me. Um, and it seems like yeah. it has been for you, too. Yeah, I mean, part of it was when I was on this trip for a week, I just yeah, wasn't obviously. watching movies. Um, you know, I was usually pretty exhausted at night. And so sometimes I would like read a little bit, but I didn't even read that much Berserk. Um, I didn't play that much Persona 2. Those are those are two other things I brought. Um, honestly, the the main thing that I watched was um, on the train sometimes when we would like need to get the toddler to just sit for a little bit and like stop like playing as much because like playing on in that small room can can get to be a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would sit and watch Robot Show is what they call it on my laptop. Um, because that one we didn't need like internet for, because I just have the files, which is uh SD Gundam Force, which Great Gundam Project is doing. We we are ahead of them now, but um, yeah. Uh, so that was like the main thing I watched. Uh, and I I will admit I don't always pay the closest attention to Robot Show when we're watching it at home because like I'm checking my phone and stuff. Uh, there are parts where we're watching it where we were like in mountains where I literally could not check my phone because I had no reception. Uh, There's no internet on the train or anything, and mm-hmm. so literally I was just sitting there watching Robot Show like with undivided attention next to a toddler. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fun show. Um, how is, how is the toddler liking it? Um, it isn't, it's definitely enjoying it. Uh, the, so it's, it's a funny thing too of like, so I, I went into a Gunpla store that I go to sometimes with them because we were like in the neighborhood and they recognized, uh, the Zaku because they like the Zako Zakos on Robot Show. Um, and so they said, I want the kitty Zaku. And so I got them like the Hello Kitty Zaku, um, like kit mm-hmm. and we built it together. Um, but we, we've also done like two other ones that are a little bit more complex. So I was doing more of the building. Um, but like they helped out just cause they're, they're interested in these robots. And so now they'll be like, Oh, that one's like my robot and things. So, um, <laughs> that's cute. Yeah. That's basically where we're at there. Um, anyway, <laughs> do we want to get to the movies? That yeah, we, I just, since you started, were doing a little. I just, yeah, you got Lightyear here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I'll get to that in just a sec. I was just going to say other stuff I've been doing instead of watching movies, um, uh, Still reading comics and manga. Read a bunch of Usagi Yojimbo. Uh, started Cross Game on Zhuo's recommendation. Um, please stop listening to this podcast and go read like the first ten chapters of Cross Game immediately. Uh, it, it, it it's fucking incredible. <laughs> do I just do I just need to stop recording and go do that? No, no, you're you're okay. stuck here. 
But oh. um, you're going to like Cross Game a lot more than you're liking Berserk. Uh, I fully believe that. I, I'm not saying, oh, you should make Cross Game your next thing. I'm just saying that, like, ah, in the fullness of time, I will someday pressure you into reading Cross Game, and when you do, you will like it. It's up your alley. So Yeah. Um, really enjoying Cross Game. Uh, really enjoying Star Trek. I've, I've watched so much Star Trek, dude. I've watched <laughs> so much Star Trek. I... Yeah. I I watched almost all of season four in like three days. It's bad. I'm now like midway through season five. I'm I'm in it. <laughs> anyway, you're, you're starting to get close to to Deep Space Nine, right? How many seasons of there, there's, uh, TNG were there? I'm midway through season five. There are seven seasons. So okay, yeah. Excited. I mean, at this rate, you are getting close. Yes, yes. I was thinking I would start DS9 next year. At the rate I'm going, I will start DS9 by, like, November at the latest. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah. Honestly, probably sooner. But, yeah. I know, I know, I think TNG and DS9, like, kind of go back and forth for the next se- for the first season or so. So maybe yeah. I'll even start DS9 before I finish TNG, but I'm tentatively planning on just finishing TNG and then doing DS9. So Yeah, that's that's fine. You're not going to like It it's not doing the thing that like CW DC shows would do where right. like you need to be following the the two shows to understand yeah. what's happening in this episode or whatever. Um TV just wasn't on that level yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've got the first movie of our uh, little catch-up on movie things. Nora and I were sitting on the couch one day, and uh, as I've mentioned before, we have a smart TV. Smart TV sometimes says, like, you turn it on, and it's just like, here's content for you to watch. We want to wa- We want you to watch the content. And the smart TV this day was saying... You should watch Lightyear, that new, um, uh, the premise is that in 1995, this kid named, this is literally, it has like an opening, like text crawl type thing. It's not a crawl, Mm. but it, it, in 1995, this kid named Andy buys the Buzz Lightyear toy. And the premise is that the movie I am... I was watching was that movie that Buzz Lightyear was from in 1995. Um, I think think it fails at that premise because this feels like a movie from 2022. It does not feel like a movie from 1995 in any way. Yeah. (laughs) This movie absolutely would not have come out in 1995. But Nora and I, TV said, hey, do you want to watch this? And Nora and I said, yeah, that'll be bad. We love watching bad Disney movies and shitting on them. We'll watch that. And we just had a really nice time. We just really enjoyed Lightyear. We just thought it was really good. (laughs) Um, I mean, I gave it like three stars on Letterboxd. I didn't think it was like fucking fantastic. But like, it's the best Pixar movie in like, I don't know, 10 plus years. I'm not going to go look at a list and tell you definitively, but it's... It's the best one they've done in a while, I feel like. Um, It's just... It's got a lot of the problems of modern um, 
movies. It's definitely a little too quippy, um, a little too... Like, Nora and I were describing this feeling of, like, it feels like they wrote the script without any jokes, and then they went in and added, like, oh, we gotta have three jokes per page, you know? Yeah. Um, and so the jokes don't really land until they introduce a little robot cat whose head can rotate 360 degrees. Um... That little robot cat is very precious. Very good. <laughs> uh, literally no other thoughts. We didn't. We weren't even really able to do like the blockbusters thing of like, oh, here's all the bad politics of the Lightyear movie because it's mostly just like Buzz Lightyear doesn't like working with others. He likes being like the Lone Ranger, basically. And then over the course of the movie, he learns it's good to help others. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> I don't know. Three star movie. Uh, yeah. Rating for stairwells. Don't fucking remember. I watched this movie two weeks ago. I think I was yeah. high. <laughs> um, that would make sense. Uh, is it my turn? Yeah. So, uh, I watched this fully with the intention of, oh, we're doing Dead or Alive and Dead or Alive Two Birds. We're going to have M on to talk about these movies. Um, you know, I'm going to watch the, like, Mika Takashi movie that I think is M's favorite. It's, it's at least the one that I hear them talk about the most. I haven't watched it yet. They recommended it to me when I was, uh, asking about, like, musicals to check out um i'm gonna watch it it'll be a thing i can talk about maybe they will like be able to engage with that part of us talking about movies we've watched um even though they just like even more so than you autumn have fallen off of watching movies recreationally mm-hmm. uh not for work <laughs> they're gamer um, yeah they are fully gamer moded uh so i watched the happiness of the katakuris um it was it was really like it was a great movie i i uh it's kind of amazing thinking about how this was 2001 so this is like coming out at the same time basically as the dead or alive movies Mm -hmm. um it it comes out between dead or alive 2 and dead or alive 3 um and definitely just like operating in a completely different mode um it is like kind of pulling from horror stuff, although I wouldn't really call it like a, a horror com- like or a horror movie. It's more like comedy that is using some horror tropes. Um, it is a musical. There's, there's a number of like moments where people will sing. Um, and there are these like strange claymation sequences. So the, the very beginning is like, um, this almost, uh, unrelated other than like just kind of setting vibes for the movie claymation sequence. Um, and then, uh, it will also like, it basically is shows up as like the main way that they do, uh, special effects action sequences like if someone is like hanging dangerously from the side of a cliff they are going to do it as like a claymation version of them hanging from a clay cliff um 
you know, in the way that someone might do like CG to do that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. They might cut out their face and put it over the claymation doll uh, of them like emoting or something. Um, right. But the the basic premise of it is uh, there's this like multi-generational family um, that uh, basically like everybody has something to which like you know they they feel like a failure or like they haven't like quite gotten what's due or they can keep messing up at something um and they all uh, under the like guidance of um sort of the patriarch of the family uh the like main guy uh open up this bed and breakfast um in like a a garbage dump i think near mount fuji uh it's like really secluded um and are basically trying to figure out some way to uh you know finally succeed and like make a go at all running together this like family owned bed and breakfast um and then their first guest comes and uh kills himself in the night and they're like, well, we can't have new stories be the very first guest at this new bed and breakfast, like this new hotel right. died in his room. Like nobody's going to want to come and stay here. So they decide to hide the body. Um, naturally. And then, yeah, naturally, as you do in the garbage dump, just like burying him. Um and then the second guest shows up, uh, which is a sumo wrestler and his like, uh, potentially underage girlfriend and uh they both die in the hotel as well so they have to get rid of those bodies um (laughs) and basically it just spirals from here where like it just becomes this this comedy of like trying to conceal bodies uh some people show up who are just normal guests and don't die but then there are ones that they're like these these people are for sure going to die uh there's lots of fun jokes around that um, and a little bit more of like a, there's this subplot that becomes more part of the main plot where, um, the recently divorced daughter has basically fallen in love with a, a guy who from the beginning, like this could be considered a spoiler of revealing, revealing something. Uh, but he does claim to be a U.S. Naval officer, uh, but like, also continually is confusing the UK and the U S and says he's like the nephew of queen Elizabeth II and everything. So just like very clearly like a scummy con artist kind of guy. Um, And that just sort of becomes part of the, the main plot that they're like starting through as it goes on. Um, It's a lot of fun. It's definitely like goofy and weird. Um, Sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but in, this a, is... in a way that feels like very distinct from like the first Dead or Alive or something. Um, the, what you're describing to me sounds like like the taste of tea has a very dry sense of humor, and like mm-hmm. what if you went about the same thing with a not very dry sense of humor? Yeah, and there's there's still a certain amount of dryness to how some of it plays, but it is definitely more played up and and hammed up, and um, you know, 
<clears throat> these moments of them breaking into song, singing about like how they're going to hide the body or, um, you know, what if we get discovered or there's just like a, a um, very early kind of city pop style ballad that the, the like patriarch and his wife sing, um, stuff like that, uh, that some of it is almost like pastiche of different styles. Um, so yeah, but it is definitely like in that same kind of, it, I think it is like pulling from and referencing some of the same tropes that exist in, uh, both like Japanese art cinema, as well as just like feel good movies in Japan, um, about like intergenerational families that taste of tea is doing. Um, it's just, yeah, I think taste of tea is a little bit more dry where sometimes you can miss it, even though like the mountain song is just very clearly ridiculous. The, the grandpa always having his hair stand up is very ridiculous in taste of tea. Um, this is a little bit more, like on the face because they're just doing claymation. It's like, it's the kind of movie that critics will write about and being like, right. Wow. Like, uh, is ja all of Japanese culture just on drugs or whatever? And it's just like, no, it, yeah. they just have this like history of like surreal comedy. Like <laughs> God, surreal comedy is just a common, like part of humor in a lot of Japan. So, um, it's not drugs it's just a style of comedy <laughs> i i remember um i just remember this really hitting like once katamari damacy came over here and yeah. people just being like oh my gosh in japan they're just dropping acid all the time or whatever i'm really glad that like we have realized that is a racist thing in the yeah yeah but uh, definitely back when those movies came out in 2001, people yeah. were still writing like that. Oh, yeah. Um, I, Ka Katamari Damacy did not invent it. Katamari Damacy is just when I became aware, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I put for the stairs here, uh, B plus with a question mark. Because I don't actually remember the stairs that mm -hmm. I know that there are multiple stairs that or multiple scenes that happen on the stairs, like within the the hotel, um, and there's like one where the police come to investigate, and like the the sumo wrestler and his girlfriend, like the dead bodies are upstairs. Uh, the police officer is just like there to like introduce himself or whatever um and they're all just like very awkwardly standing on the stairs like trying to make sure that he won't go up there um and i feel like there's some other stuff that happened around um with the stairs uh so i i did a b plus but like i i watched this so long ago <laughs> yeah everything yeah. i watched was at least a week ago Yep. Um, my turn? Yeah. Time to talk about one of the best Steven Spielberg movies. Um, I watched... I, I would put this up there with, like, AI for me. Um, I would need to look at a list, uh, but... Um, so I watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977 Steven Spielberg movie. Um, uh, first thing I would say is that, like, you know, before I get into, like, what I thought about this movie, um, I had always heard, well, 
I didn't know what this movie was. I knew it was an alien movie. I knew that it came out like between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws. Um, I knew it was maybe a little more like dad. It was one of, um, well, no, Spielberg has always done dad feelings. Jaws is an extremely dad feelings movie, but like, yeah, I knew, I knew there's a shift that happens when he has kids about exactly what dad feelings he's dealing with, man. Close Encounters is the most I just had kids movie in human history. <laughs> it's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> um so uh so I didn't really know like tonally, I guess what I was getting myself into. So I was really surprised to learn that it is not like a sort of actiony movie about um Aliens, it's, like, way closer to, like, 2001, but in reverse, where, like, stuff is coming to us instead of us going out into the stars. Um, Yeah. You know, people always talk about how Star Trek The Motion Picture is a riff on um, 2001, and I think that's true, but I also think that Star Trek The Motion Picture might just be doing Close Encounters, um, remarkably similar movies. Um, All that to say... Close Encounters of the Third Kind, one of the best movies ever fucking made. (laughs) Certainly, like, other than... Other than Raiders, like, maybe my favorite Spielberg movie now, um, which is saying something. I am a huge Spielberg person. Um, Yeah. I was... I was so fucking taken with this movie. Oh, my God. I... (laughs) It it just completely bowled me over. I was weeping by the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess... I don't know how much this matters. I believe I was watching the director's cut, which, um, to my understanding, um, there were sort of, like, two different versions of this movie in the, like, theatrical and home video markets, and the director's cut is, like, Spielberg sort of massaging those two together. Uh, I don't really know what the differences are, but someone does, and someone is going to be curious. So I watched the director's cut. I thought it was fucking incredible. I thought it was fucking amazing. Um, I... (laughs) This movie is like... (laughs) It's just... It so perfectly captures what it would be like to see an alien ship. Because, like, in a, in a lesser movie, the people would see um, the alien ship and they would immediately, like, be pointing and having dialogue lines and, 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 and like, you know, speaking. Yeah. Um, and, and... Close Encounters just expressing this, like, at every moment, just this, like, awe at, like, you know, what what might be out there. Just, like, this, like, this, like, oh, this feeling of speechlessness of, like, I, the thing I am looking at is so amazing that I couldn't even, like, um, begin to comprehend, like, what I would say, how I would react, um... 
it's just fucking incredible. It's fucking amazing. (laughs) Also, the special effects are so fucking good. We've lost so much by getting rid of miniatures. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we really have. Oh, um... Yeah, I don't even know like what to say about this movie. I think Richard Dreyfus gives a uh, a great performance as like the worst man in human history. Uh, but like, <laughs> I get I get how he became that way. You know, I think he sucks. I think he's a jackass. Yeah. But like, the movie is like, oh, what if he is the worst person? What if you hate him, but you also you get it? You know? Um, yeah, it, it walks the tightrope so perfectly. Um, I just, I, I am so amazed by, by everything, um, that that movie is. Um, it's so good. Yeah. Um, there were, there were a bunch of people who I think were up for that role too. Um, like I know the the big one was Steve McQueen, who I think this could be apocryphal, but who turned it down because he wasn't able to cry on on cue, and so he thought that he wasn't right for it. Yeah, um, I I don't see how this movie would work with. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't I don't see how that would land. Um, but yeah, there's also like Jack Nicholson and other oh. people. That oh. would, yeah. <laughs> oh no. Um, <laughs> Jack Nicholson just like capsizes. Jack Nicholson is like the glacier, and this movie is the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I pulled up a list of other people who were uh, who turned down the the role. Um, and I think the best one here uh, would have been Gene Hackman. Yeah, I think I, I, think I found it. the same list. Gene Hackman could work yeah. in this role. Gene Hackman. Al Pacino, fuck no. Fuck no. <laughs> uh, I mean, Dustin like, Hoffman could, but like, no. Would not yeah, be du- better. Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino um were at their very best in nineteen seventy seven. Like never were better than nineteen seventy seven. I don't think they have yeah. quite what this this role needs for them. But Gene yeah. Hackman, I can see it. I can I can I can see Gene Hackman very easily. Yeah. Um I'm just I'm just reading this thing now of uh <laughs> Spielberg explained when filming Jaws, uh Dreyfus talked me into casting him. He listened to about 155 days worth of close encounters. He even contributed ideas. Dreyfus reflected, I launched myself into a campaign to get the part. I would walk by Steve's office and say things like, Al Pacino has no sense of humor, or Jack Nicholson is too crazy. <laughs> I eventually convinced him to cast me. Gaslighting Steven Spielberg into casting me. <laughs> Way to go, um, King. <laughs> Fucking incredible. Um. Anyway, who do you think directed the picture? The mothership. <laughs> uh, do you have a stairwell rating? Do you have any anything else to say about this movie? 
Um, I gave it an A for stairs. I don't remember why, but I do remember while watching the movie thinking, those are some really good stairs. I think there's a scene really early where, um, the young kid who gets abducted, um, he, he walks down some stairs. And I remember thinking they looked really good, especially considering, like, you know, um, it's weird, um... Close Encounters taking place in suburbs of Indiana, but it's 1977, and so it's just like, suburbs looked different back then, you know? Like, yeah. Like, the the line between, like, suburb and rural was a little blurrier, you know? Um, before, like, you know, everybody had their, like, office jobs uh and they're like 45 minute commutes you know yeah um so they're, they're like suburban stair they're suburban home stairs but like it's just it's just different also you know spielberg was photographing them and so they probably just looked better than most suburban home stairs <laughs> yeah uh but yeah that's close encounters um tell me about nanami um yeah so uh nanami the inferno of first love uh the japanese title here um is a little bit more uh like vague i would say uh it's the word for like inferno or hell and then the word for first love um i think that's the order maybe it's I think it's actually switched. Um, but uh, this is a movie that I found on Rare Film M. Um, and I watched it for a couple of reasons. One, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything by Hani Susumu, um, and I wanted to check out some of his works. Um, this one I actually specifically found when I had been searching for Tirayama Shuji on Rare Film M um, because he wrote the script along with uh, Hani and. I think one other person, uh, I think it, it was like based on a script. Um, and then like the director and, uh, Teriyama, Teriyama Shuji like reworked it, um, and added to it and things. Um, so that, that's like what the main reason why I watched it. But the other reason is I just know that I'm like into this kind of shit and, um, you know, really enjoyed like funeral parade of roses when we watched that um definitely like terry yamashuji films um i think like some of the the uh ones that i was talking about earlier the like uh eros and massacre and stuff um those yoshida kiju films um all mm-hmm. of these i think are films that were put out by the art theater guild um so like I actually got a list of all the art theater guild films. Um, and I want to try and work through a bunch of them, um, that I can find. Some of them are, are still hard, like are hard to find here, but a little bit of context, um, in the 19, 
I think it was 1961, but like early 1960s, uh, this guild was formed. Um, and it was in the beginning kind of focused on bringing, uh, foreign art films to Japan and showing them in theaters. Mm -hmm. Uh, but especially, uh, in the sixties as like the major Japanese film studios started, uh, declining, um, there was kind of a shift. We, we get that shift towards like, um, you know, we've talked about Yakuza movies like Red Peony Gambler where they're like, oh, we're just going to churn out a bunch of these almost like a TV show or something. Um, and as part of that, they these major studios weren't picking up as much work from uh, some of these younger directors, some of these more like one off or experimental or like weird films, uh, because they were trying to focus on just like, how can we make cheap movies that are going to like get people in seats and be able to compete with TV and all of that. Um, and so this art theater guild that originally just started as like, let's bring movies to Japan um, now there's these like directors watching these movies have also been watching a lot of other films are like making these experimental films that are influenced by French new wave, like old German cinema, all of this kind of stuff. Um, they're making these movies and we're going to start like releasing them when they get rejected. Um, I think they've particularly tried to focus on like people had, try to bring it to another studio and it got rejected. Um, but like, this is where, um, Teruyama Shuji gets his start in, in film. Um, and there's a bunch of like, uh, Oshima gets his start here. Uh, there's a lot of like big, important directors who, um, do their work and release it through this. So, um, and this was, I think like the third film that they did, uh, that they released. That was a, a Japanese <laughs> production. Um, <coughs> and like helped fund so um yeah it mm -hmm. it was interesting watching it because um i know that this is like considered a pretty uh significant film um i think some of it is just its, its position as like one of the early releases from the art theater guild um but also because it's one of the the first films that like is considered to really push at um taboos of like talking about sexuality and like issues around that. Um, mm -hmm. And I mostly knew it from like the, I, I had heard vaguely some of the like scandal around it, which was this like, Oh, it's, it's called the Inferno first love. And it has this, like these depictions of like young adults, like having early sex or whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, this, this could be like kind of bad. Um, right. yeah. And I, I ended up pretty impressed with it. Um, there's some stuff that's definitely a little like uncomfortable and painful to watch, but, um, I, I was not prepared for how much this movie was going to be about like contending with sexual abuse that people have faced and the way that that, like the way that how society is fucked up about sex and that that will sometimes extend to, uh, like actual, um, sexual abuse of children will like fuck up people's ability to like have a normal relationship with sex. Um, and so it was, it was even more difficult than I was expecting, but in like a, a way that was like less, Oh, this is just like 
really bad and exploitative and more like, oh, I think this is this is really trying to um tackle these themes and I, I think it is doing an interesting job with them. Um there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. And then there's also some stuff where like when we talked when I talked about Perfect Blue, like part of what I think is interesting about Perfect Blue is that it can talk about these things without having to subject actors to, in some degree, reenact them. Right. Um, they might still have to like do the vocal performance for for Perfect Blue, but that's still notably different than like actually having some person on top of you while you have to do it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some of it is crossing over into that line of like, eh, some of this is still painful to watch, even as just like, man these like kind of young actors had to still be like involved in, in some of that. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up being pretty impressed with it. It's, it's something that I would be like, go into it with those content warnings in mind. Like it is going to be a difficult movie. Um, Mm -hmm. but I do think it's like worth checking out if that's something that you're interested in. So, um, but yeah, I, I it kind of blindsided me watching it. Um, but there there are some moments that I thought were really um, aesthetically fascinating too. There's a there's a part where um, one of the main characters, uh, the one who is like sexually abused, um, undergoes uh, like hypnotherapy. Um, is like put under hypnosis to try to like, you know uncover those memories that he's suppressing um and just a lot of the way that they film that a lot of the that's some of the stuff that's the strongest where um they're like depicting some of what he's experiencing by like actual film being projected on the wall and then it will pan from that being like projected to him like with his eyes closed like kind of in this hypnotic state um emoting and in that they were able to elide a lot more of the the like actual depicting on screen of like this abuse in a way that still was like affecting but i i think was uh felt a little bit better because it's like, okay, they didn't like necessarily have to film that part. They could just know like, okay, we don't actually have to film it. Cause we're going to move the camera away from the like actual depiction that's being projected in within the film to him having these emotional responses, um, rather than like having to actually act it out. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, there's some other stuff that was, pretty interesting um there are also just a lot of fucking great stairwell shots um in this movie so i don't entirely remember like all the context for all of them i did save some of the photos like i did screenshots um i Uh know there's one towards the very end where so i i guess i haven't explained the like very base premise which is um it starts with uh this uh young girl who's doing kind of um essentially sex work but where it's like mostly nude dancing and being a nude model for people like doing art or um taking photographs or things um but uh, and her name is nanami um and she's friends with uh shun who has like never been with a woman um and so they rent a love hotel and they're gonna have sex but he uh 
gets he's like too scared and ends up not doing it um and they reflect on like their history uh you kind of get his story uh that he has at that moment and then her talking about like her experiences um and then stuff happens where then he starts uncovering that like oh the the story he gave is like his conscious level but there's like these things they uh, suppressed from his uh adoptive father abusing him um and then that kind of there are like other parts that intersect and come up there's some exploration of like the exploitation of nanami that's happening um in the sex work stuff but then also like some of the stuff that um can still be like important for her um and you know, basically continues to explore their relationship um, and does have kind of a, a sad ending. <laughs> but, um, yeah. That's, like, basically Sounds the rough. most I want to say about it. Yeah, it, it was... Sounds it was, rough. It was rough to watch, but um, I thought it was still, like... I can see why this is, like, considered an important, influential movie. Sure, um, yeah. So, and I, I definitely want to check out more stuff from this director because I thought it was really, it was a really well-directed movie. There's some really interesting stuff in it. Um, it was also interesting to me because we've watched, uh, like we watched, um, uh, Pastoral to Die in a Country and I can see how like Teriyama Shuji's films, basically everyone that I've seen has at some point a moment that is like contending with some sort of sexual abuse that happened. Right. But so much of his films are operating in the space of like, uh, essayistic or poetic or like symbolic language. And I think he's like exceptional at that, but it was interesting to see here are these themes that I know that he's interested in, but now it's mm-hmm. being portrayed in this movie that is like far more, um, attempting to depict reality in a way that he, I think he as a director is just not interested in. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. And I, I know he's worked with, um, Hani and other films as well. So I think it'd be like, especially me just, uh, increasingly loving Teriyama Shuji as like one of my favorite directors. Um, it's kind of interesting seeing, Oh, here's stuff that he's written. Um, and I can kind of see his touch, even though stylistically it's so different. But I forget if I said I I gave an S for Stairwell because I just feel like in my heart it was an S. But um, <laughs> I don't actually like specifically remember why. I just know that there are a bunch of stairs and there are moments where I was like, yo. And sometimes it was that like very significant like a big thing was about to happen or they're having a conversation on stairs or whatever. Um, I just don't have like the full picture of the movie in my head anymore in a way where I can be like this scene, this is what happened, but there were just so many of them. So um, I think that's part of it. Time Um, to talk about Star Trek, the wrath of Khan. I guess so. (laughs) (sighs) <sighs> Quite we're talking about one of the shift. best movies ever fucking yeah. made <laughs> <laughs> man star trek 2 is fucking good yeah 
I watched the last time I watched Wrath of Khan was right before Into Darkness came out, so it's been a while. Um, it's still good. I have nothing else to say. It's Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Have you seen it? Then you know it's great. Have you not yeah. seen it? Then you should go stop. see it. Go see it. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's just good. It's um. It's so funny how much it is a... So so I will say for me personally, I do think I like the motion picture better. Um, I... I The motion picture is like one of the best Star Trek things to me um, so far in my like nascent Star Trek watching. Um, yeah. I really, really like the first movie. Uh, it's really funny how much the second movie is a response to no one liking the first movie. (laughs) (laughs) It is such a over-the-top crowd pleaser. Um, It is so blatantly just trying to, like, be, like, high-stakes thrills and and action and Kirk being Kirk and um, all these things. And it just works. Like, it absolutely, like, they fucking nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it helps that um, Kirk basically gets the reverse character arc. So in the first movie, uh, his problem is that he wants to keep going out and doing adventures, but he needs to stay on Earth and be an admiral. In this movie... Um, he wants to stay on Earth and be an admirable, be an admiral, but everybody wants him to go back out and do adventures, and it feels like that's a more natural character arc for Kirk than what the first mm-hmm. movie does. Um, and so you just get Shatner. Um, it, it's the Shatner like show in the way that, in a way that the first movie isn't. The first movie is like introducing some new actors. Um, uh, trying to give Spock a lot of time to develop. Um, you know, the first movie is more of an ensemble piece, whereas like this is like William Shatner and a bunch of people reacting to him. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, it's great. It's great. Uh, you know, Shatner for all his faults. Um, he's a star. You know, <laughs> yeah, and it helps that um, you then put opposite him like Ricardo Montalban just gets better with every line delivery in this movie. Just the more he just like turning up the evil meter, it, like it starts at ten and he just keeps turning it up with every single line he delivers in this movie. It's so good um, until like him dying and quoting paradise lost as he as he blows himself up i chef kiss it's so good yeah (laughs) it's so good i love it i love it so much (laughs) um i tried to think of anything else i have to say about this movie um disappointing um disappointing after the first movie um, and after watching Close Encounters, that this movie um, <clears throat> abandons a lot of the really complex um, 
the like miniature work of the first movie and just goes to like stuff that the shows could have done but slightly higher production value you know like yeah the it's kind of just the ships the ships move that's about it you know um compared to the the first movie like the first movie is just on some other shit (laughs) yeah um i gave it an f for stairs because uh not a great deal of stairs on the enterprise (laughs) yeah unfortunate yep um but yeah that's it for my wrath of Khan thoughts uh Good movie. Do you want to yeah. talk about Hollywood Chinese? Yeah, I I don't have like a a ton of thoughts on this one. Um, it was I thought it was an interesting documentary. I would definitely recommend um, if people are kind of interested in that Criterion Collection, like do check out the documentary that goes along with it. Um, I don't think it provides that much context that you need for like uh, Chan is missing. Um, the one I talked about in the last episode, uh, but definitely like there, there are movies that they're presenting there where there's like a note on Criterion being like, Hey, like this is presented as part of this collection. You should like watch the documentary because there's like a movie in on there where it's a bunch of people in yellow face that, you, mm-hmm. and they talk about it. Uh, and I think like, Part of what's interesting about this movie is getting a lot of um, actors from across like the spectrum of these films um, and across the generations talking about them um, where you can then kind of have this like dialogue and conversation start emerging where um, you have like older generations being like, yeah, like I can, this was not great, but also this was like people were, there's no way that they would have made this film with Chinese actors and it be popular. And this like still wasn't that big, but because they got these like bigger actors on it, like more people saw it and it was still doing like a positive portrayal of Chinese culture. Um, and then other people being like, yeah, but it still really fucking sucks. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. and having that like space for the, the, that dialogue to occur, um, as I think part of what was interesting about it, um, and like in general, the, the movie comes down obviously with like, Hey, this stuff sucked. Like it, there shouldn't have been this casting of white actors and, and everything, but also there's like a, a context around it, um, that doesn't like, mm-hmm make it okay, but that it is, like, explaining how it happened and also how, like, Chinese-American actors were still involved or, like, Chinese-American produced, like, you know, people working uh, behind the scenes were still involved in these movies. And, like, they they had complex feelings about it, um, but were still, like, involved in that production. Um, they're... The, the one, like... My uh, opinion on um, oh, I'm totally drawing a blank on his name right now. Um, the he's like a big character actor. 
Um, I am no help to you here. Yeah. Oh, wait. Were you texting me about Christopher Lee? Yeah, Christopher Lee. Um, there's definitely some things that Christopher Lee says here where uh, my my opinion of him dropped a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, and, like, he did appear in Yellowface in some movies. But then there's also some that's interesting where, um, like, the... Because those are the Fu Manchu movies. Um, and the, like woman who played his daughter was a Chinese actress. Um, and she has a little bit of this like attitude of like, yeah, at once, like I felt uncomfortable on the set and with some of the stuff that we were doing. Uh, also I made like two of these movies and then I didn't have to like worry about money and could act in other stuff. and that is was like a nice thing for me (laughs) yeah um and there's a certain amount of just like i got mine fuck you to that response but i think there's also a certain amount of like yeah like if if you were trying to make it as an actor or an actress or whatever um at this time like your opportunity to make a lot of money in this is probably going to be to do something kind of shitty um and then you just don't get any opportunity. But, um, but yeah, so there's a lot of those like complexities that people are talking about, um, where I don't think any of it is like justifying, you know, shitty racism that existed, but it, it is trying to explore some of that and right. how those things like still have informed what, uh, the portrayal of like Chinese American people in the U S has been. Um, and, the one of the things that I found found really interesting uh, later on was this thing that starts emerging of um, one of the things that's like different about like this Hollywood Chinese cinema stuff uh, is there is like a, a market in China and Hong Kong for movies. There are right. movies being made there, there, there are audiences going who are seeing themselves as the dominant culture depicted on the screen. Um, and those movies get imported to the U.S. and people in the U.S. will also see those and like identify with those people to some degree. And so this is the thing that is like fairly distinct from like the growth of black cinema in the U S which is a far more like separate movement than a lot of the, like a lot of uh, Chinese American actors are like specifically still working within more of a Hollywood system. Whereas there's like a a separate kind of film culture that emerged um, with like black Americans in the U S and some of that is that like, there isn't like there, there are some, growing African cinemas, but one, there's like a greater disconnect for a lot of people between Africa and then like being a black American because of specifically the way that slavery, like erased for those connections to a specific place. Right. Um, Cause Africa is fucking huge. So you don't have like a connection to a, a specific country or nation or village or anything anymore. Um, and then also just the like 
a lot of African cinemas are still extremely small. They haven't like had that kind of influx of money that's allowed for like the amount of output that exists in Hong Kong as even like a small, you know, compared to a, a lot of African nations. Hong Kong is actually fairly small. Um, and so I thought some of that discussion was interesting. And then also them talking about like, one of the things that continues to be frustrating to this day is a lot of the big actors who now appear in Hollywood movies are people who got the opportunities to make movies, to do small movies, build up, do these big movies, build a following, build a fandom right. in their home market of China or Hong Kong or whatever. And now Jet Li comes over here and makes movies. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's like very different than somebody who grew up in America uh, identifies as like Chinese American being able to get those opportunities and, and become a star as well. And so like a lot of the, the stars that exist, the like Chinese stars that exist in Hollywood today are still like uh, people who got their start in Chinese cinema um, rather than like people who are able to come up within like an American. Um, and obviously there are exceptions here, but, um, but yeah, I thought that was kind of a, a, uh, an interesting part to you. So but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of like sort of, I, I just think it's a, a very interesting thing to watch both as like someone who's just interested in film. And that's kind of talking about history from this film history, from this perspective, um, as well as like specifically like Chinese film and Chinese American film and the differences that exist in that. Um, right. So would recommend watching it. Uh, I put question marks for stairs. I feel like I saw some stairs, but it was like clips from a movie, you know? Right. Um, and I don't remember it at all. Cause it, it's the one thing is that this is not a, a documentary that it, it is interesting for its content. Um, it is not a documentary that if I was going to do a project of showing you like documentary cinema autumn, right. I would it yeah. be like, let's watch this. Cause it's just the, interviewing people and then cutting to like archival footage. Uh, the kind of standard. Yes. Um, which is just a dominant way of making stuff now. And we would still like, if I was doing a project of let's do documentary cinema, I would still probably pull something like that, but maybe like a more historical, like here's kind of where some of this, these genre tropes of doing this style appear. Um, but so, yeah, it's not like interesting as a, a the documentary form as someone who's interested in the form of documentaries. Um, right. But the content was really interesting. So, um, yeah, I ended up talking about that more than I expected, but um, it's interesting. I was trying to find that one quote that I, I tweeted uh, that I just thought was very funny. That was from... Um, Oh, was it Ang Lee? Um, it was Ang Lee. I remember yeah. this now. <laughs> uh, and like he he went on to um, let me see if I can actually pull it up because it was on my my locked. Uh, no, it's not going to give it to me. Um, 
It's so hard to search for tweets on your locked. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't remember either. Yeah, it was just specifically about how it's great to watch uh, Jackie Chan beat up a bunch of white dudes. Um, <laughs> and then, like, he continues on to say, like, but a lot of the, what we get in the U.S. is just the specific import of, like, a Hong Kong action movie that's, like, full of this, you know, macho, like, uh, badass martial artist guy in a way that, like, oh... Like, you're Asian, you must know, like, Kung Fu has become, like, a annoying stereotype that people have to deal with. Um, and it's not the only thing that, like, people have to offer, but it is, like, the dominant thing that the West wants um, from, like, Chinese culture and cinema. Uh, but it was just very funny that he said that first part, and then they did just show, like, a sequence for a little bit of Jackie Chan just beating up some white guys in, like, a convenience store in a movie. Um, and then it continued on with this quote. <laughs> um, and, it like, it was fun to watch Jackie Chan just beat up some white dudes. <laughs> um... Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. It sucks! <laughs> yeah. It sucks. It really does. It sucks ass. <sighs> um, I have a thorny question for you. Yeah? Christopher Lloyd plays a Klingon in this movie. Is, yeah. is Christopher Lloyd doing yellow face or black face or both? <laughs> that's that's the question that Search for Spock is really demanding an answer to. And, and I think the answer is both. <laughs> yeah. It sucks ass. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is weird how it I is think... both. It is both. I'm I googled yes. it. It is both. <laughs> And then you, you haven't even heard him it. speaking. You, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I have not pulled that up. It's been uh, so long since I've watched this movie. Um, among other things, one of this movie's principal, principal crimes is being fucking boring as shit. Um, I got my hopes up because I was like, oh, Klingon movie. I like the Klingons a lot in TNG. This will be great. Uh, different people writing the Klingons and TNG. That's the only, you know, Gene Roddenberry had to fucking die for the Klingons to get good. Um, so. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have anything else to say about the search for Spock. It sucks ass. I barely remember watching it. I was only watching it so that I could watch the other three because I knew... I knew that this was, like, the least liked of the uh, TOS Star Trek movies. Yeah. But I was not prepared for how dire this movie was going to be. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah I, got, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Uh, you did an F for the stairs as well. Yeah, which, those stairs on the Enterprise. Same. Yeah. Um... A movie that I truly am not going to have a lot to say because it's the thing that everyone said and they're right. I watched 
the Bob's Burgers movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's just the title. Is it just the Bob's Burgers movie? I will. Or look. did I just type that in? That's what you typed in. I will. Look. Yeah. Is it really called? Because it. It I is called like, the Bob's Burgers movie. Okay, I have not. I've seen it, and I think I said to Emily once, like, "Do you want to watch the Bob's Burgers movie?" But I didn't like think while I was saying it that I was saying the title. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just weird to say it anyway. Um, it. Why is it? Why is it weird with the Bob's Burgers movie? But it's not weird with the Simpsons movie. The Simpsons movie—that's a title, in yeah. a way that the Bob's Burgers movie <laughs> is not. <laughs> the Bob's Burgers movie is just saying this is the movie that's. I think some of it is the fact that it, the the TV show is called The Simpsons. It's not called Simpsons. Yeah. This TV show is called Bob's Burgers, and now you're saying the Bob's Burgers. I think that's what makes it weird. Is the Bob's <laughs> the Bob's Burgers? <laughs> anyway, uh, the thing that everyone said about it, and they're correct, is what makes this movie good is that um, a lot of movies that would be based on this, like the Simpsons movie, um, like for some reason wants to act like it is. You don't just want to watch a higher budget version of the show you like. Uh, And they Mm. all have to like completely radically change from the formula of what the show is where they like go to fucking Alaska or whatever, you know? Weird. The Bob's Burgers movie is just like, do you like the show Bob's Burgers? Well, we have a much higher budget and we have more minutes so we can do a longer version yeah. of one of our episodes. And it's just yeah, one of our episodes. It's just a long one with better animation. That's good. That's what you want. And like that in and of itself is just congrats. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for just giving me uh, <laughs> an episode of the show that Emily and I will sometimes put on in the background while we're just chilling on the couch. But it lasts for the length of a movie. And when I look at the animation, it looks a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can see that some stuff was more storyboarded rather than just being like, well, yeah, we just always frame the front of the the store this way. Um, right. You yeah. like did a different angle. And you storyboarded the angle. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I needed from you. (laughs) Um, I don't fucking remember if there's any stairs. When I was in the mindset, when I was watching this, I was not in the mindset of I'm watching a movie for ornate (laughs) stairwells. I was in the mindset of, oh, I'm watching Bob's Burgers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I could just shut my brain off and half play Persona 2 in the background. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, don't remember stairs. Final movie that we have to talk through before we do what other, other bits we have planned. Oh, no. Oh, Christ. <laughs> There's an intruder in my home. So, yeah. So- David Lynch is approaching the microphone. What's he going to say? <laughs> you watched a movie on your fucking telephone? Get real. <laughs> okay, goodbye, <laughs> David Lynch. 
I watched Beneath the Planet of the Apes on my telephone. I was cooking dinner. I was high. That movie, not very good, but I did like it. <laughs> Charlton Heston said, I don't want to be in this one. Please so, get somebody wait. who looks exactly like me to confuse Autumn, who is high. <laughs> were you were you just like too high and like lazy to just walk like to the other room and get your tablet or oh i watched it on my tablet it's just funnier to say my phone okay (laughs) Okay. i have discovered i have discovered um so i have a little like i have my kitchen counters and then there are some like shelves and i can set my tablet on top of the shelves um which is Mm -hmm. great for when i am doing dishes or cutting things but not great for when I am um, uh, using the stove, which is 180 degrees behind where I usually set that uh, tablet. But a couple weeks ago, I realized tablet has magnetic case, fridge, magnetic. And I, I, I rubbed my brain cells together and I realized <laughs> I could put the, the tablet on the uh, on the thing. The fridge. The fridge, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The meal was way better than the movie. I gotta be real with you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uh, I remember that M said something about how we have to watch through a bunch of Planet of the Apes movies so that we can, like, watch one for the podcast. I don't remember which one we're supposed to watch for the podcast. I I believe. Uh, And I haven't started watching any of the movies yet. Oh, you're fine. Um... (laughs) I was not doing this to appease M. I was doing this because I have been meaning to get a ring. I have been meaning to get around to watching all the other Planet of the Apes movies for longer than I have known M. It's just that M lit a fire under my ass recently. Not really. Yeah. Um. Part of the reason I've never gone through with watching the rest of them is that I know that like beneath the Planet of the Apes is the least well liked of any of them. But I believe. What M wants us to watch in particular is Battle for the Planet of the Apes, possibly Conquest. I would have to double check. Um, okay. But, okay. Let me give you a little plot summary of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Um, have you seen the film Planet of the Apes? Uh-huh. That happens again. Yeah. But this time, a little more stuff happens. <gasps> um... <laughs> It's really funny because uh, at the start of the movie, you meet this new guy who looks so much like Charlton Heston. It was like, I thought it was just Charlton Heston. And then I realized there are other astronauts who have gone in search of Charlton Heston and have also landed on the planet of the apes, which you might recall from the first film is Earth. But all along. Yeah. Um. So this new guy is a fish out of water, and he meets Zira, and he meets Dr. Zaius, and Dr. he Zayas, leaves... Dr. Zaius, <laughs> <laughs> He leaves Ape Society, he strikes out on his own, he realizes that um, this was Earth all along, um, has a bad time. Uh, the thing that... The thing where this movie finally gets real fun is, like, about 45 minutes in, they have a new idea that wasn't already done in the first movie, which is, um, all right, so 
uh, he's if he's going to go out into the wilderness away from the ape society, what's out there? He finds weird people. He finds um can I spoil beneath the planet of the apes for you? Uh yeah. He he meets a bunch of humans who live, get this, beneath the planet of the apes. Mm. Um in like old New York subway tunnels, right? Mmm, Futurama. Yes. <laughs> okay, thank you, because I was like, where have I... I feel like I've seen this before, culturally. What would I have watched that would be referencing, ben- like, Beneath the Planet of the Apes? Now I remember. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, guy who looks like Charlton Heston, um, he meets these people who live beneath the planet of the apes and they're all psychic. Um, and they like, so they don't have any weapons cause they're like, we're peaceful people. We don't have weapons. Instead. What we do is we can project images into your mind that make you want to kill yourself. Mm. And so like later That's when what the peaceful ape- means, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like later when the apes come to attack them, they're like, we are peaceful people, and so we will project onto the apes, like, a vision of, like, the lawgiver, like, a statue of the lawgiver, like, bleeding from the eyes, and this field of, like, apes on crucifixes, basically. Um, which has, it's really racially charged, now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. And then... The apes go and attack the psychic people. Also, the psychic people have a big church dedicated to the atomic bomb, um, which they're like, we're peaceful people. This is a weapon of peace uh, because it would deter people from attacking us because we have a big bomb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then while they're praying to the bomb, they all remove their faces and have like like horrible disfigurements um that make them look like the ghouls from Fallout 3 um and, and the apes and the people fight and Charlton Heston finally shows up for like two scenes he gets shot and dies and then the guy who looks like Charlton Heston also gets shot and the the people are going to set off their atomic bomb. But then the guy who looks like Charlton Heston, his hand hits a switch or something, and he is the one that ultimately detonates the atomic bomb. Basically, I think the people... I think the people were trying to launch it over to the ape city, and he just pressed a button that detonated it right there, basically, I think is what happens. Because then... um. He presses this button, cut to black, and a little title card fades in that says, Then the world ended. And then credits roll. That's the end of the movie. (laughs) It's fucking, it's so fucking funny. I thought somebody was going to give a big speech. I thought there would be some sort of resolution. No. Nuclear winter. World over. (laughs) Yeah. Don't know how that's going to pan out, because I know Zira is in the next three movies, uh, so the world can't be that over, but, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. 
Yeah. Um. That's it. Beneath the Planet yeah. of the Apes, a very silly movie. Um, not very good. Did like it a lot. So. <laughs> All right. Um. Are you are you gonna do this quiz that you told me about? Oh no? yes, yes. Okay. Let me pull this up here. This was something that uh, we thought maybe we were gonna be able to record before I left um, on my trip. Uh, that would like go in the place of what was going to be the dead or alive episode, um, but you still weren't feeling very well, so we didn't do yeah. this. Uh, so. What I have here is a quiz. Um, in the leftmost column of my spreadsheet, I've got the name of the film. You don't get to know that, obviously. That's You're going to determine yeah. the names of the films. Other information in this spreadsheet. Uh, the year it came out. Um, the rating that Roger Ebert gave it. The rating that you have given it on Letterboxd. And then I've got two excerpts. I, I I've specifically chosen like the first expert, the first excerpt I have chosen for each of these films to maybe give away a little less than maybe the second excerpt will. So okay. Um, I kind of rushed this. I feel like we could revisit this quiz on a later podcast, and I might tweak it. But that's what I got for right now. Um, so for this first movie. Uh, I don't want to give you the year straight away, um, because I feel like that might narrow stuff down too much. But uh, would you like to get like yours and e- Roger Ebert's ratings, or would you like to get an excerpt first? Um, I feel like I feel like a- am I like losing points if I do ratings? I just feel like ratings is setting you- it up well for the listener. You the, whole, would, the whole premise yeah. of this, right, is that these are movies that I liked and Roger Ebert panned. That, okay, so that was the premise, right? Because what I discovered is that you can go on Roger Ebert's website and you can filter it for, like, reviews he did between zero and two stars. And so I was, like, looking for movies that, like, he had rated poorly but you had rated highly on Letterboxd. One of the issues I encountered is there is a lot of movies on Letterboxd that you have marked as seen, but you have not rated. And so, yes, because not always, but usually if there's a rating, I have watched it like fairly recently, whereas right. I just don't trust my memory of movies to actually give a rating. Yeah, yeah. And like I was looking at a lot of movies from like, 2000 to 2010 which is like exactly the the time of like oh you watched that you don't remember what you thought of it you know Mm -hmm. so the idea was movies you've rated positively that ebert rated negatively i don't know that i quite delivered on that premise really but anyway oh you know what actually how about I've got five movies here. I have one I want to do last. Give me, just so we can do uh, this in a slightly random order, give me, oh, I, one, two, three, four. Okay, yeah, give me a n- number between one and four. Um, I have, I have a thing I'm going to do. Okay. 
alpha. You gonna roll one? You gonna roll one d four? Get this this fully yeah. here. Yeah, this um, is good. I'm trying to find it. So this is like an old bag of dice that I had. Um, that were at my parents' house and they sent with me, and I was gonna give them to friends, and then my friends never took them. Mm. So, uh, god damn it! I just saw D four, and now it has disappeared. Here we go. Uh, All if right. people are curious what this one looks like, um, it's like very slightly translucent, uh, and blue, and it's a fairly solid blue with like a matte texture, and then white letters uh on the corners mm-hmm. four four all right well, let me see here one two three four here we go all right roger ebert gave this one and a half stars you gave this four and a half stars okay. here is the here is the first excerpt there was a great deal of controversy while the movie was being made all sorts of rumors about closed sets, etc. But the sex scene, as it appears now, isn't raunchy or too explicit, just sort of dreamily erotic. I mention the scene so prominently because it's one of the few scenes that really work in the film, a movie that has been so ruthlessly overproduced that it's all flash and style and no story. Well, there's probably a story moping about somewhere within all the set decoration. Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. I th- I think I have a set of rules now that I think about it. How about yeah. you get two points if you can get it with one excerpt, one point if you get it with two experts excerpts, zero if you don't if you don't guess what the movie is. Okay. Um. It talks about one sex scene, right? Yes. Um, I'm just I'm just trying to think of like, and like the one sex scene is like considered raunchy, or was, it, but he doesn't think it is. The scene as it now appears isn't raunchy or too explicit, just sort of dreamily erotic. Uh The other thing is I'm not like looking at a list, but so you're saying four and a half and there's the part about the set dressing. Mm-hmm. Is this Dracula? It is not. An okay. excellent guess. An excellent okay. guess. Cause I feel like that has like one real sex scene. Yeah. Do you that, want the ex that, Yeah. Alright, I'll give you the second excerpt here. Um Oh, right. This one, I I had to, like, edit these, obviously. Like, you'll hear me say the director instead of, like, the director's name. Um, So this one has sort of an unnatural intro. Uh, Well, he doesn't, but it's about the only time in the movie there aren't curtains blowing in the wind. The movie has so much would-be elegance and visual class that it never quite happens as a dramatic event. There's so much cross-cutting, so many memories, so many apparent flashbacks that the real drama is lost. The drama of a living human being being seduced into vampirism. This is the hunger. This is the hunger. You were so close. You were so close. (laughs) 
<laughs> you were as close as you could possibly be without saying the hunger. Yeah. <laughs> I I even got that it was like a vampire sex scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you get one point for that. Okay. Um, um should I should I roll a a die for the 3 now? Uh yeah. So you could just roll 1d4 and just, you know, if it lands on 4, re-roll. So for this I'm actually going to roll a d6 that I pulled out and it'll be oh, like yeah. uh you know, 1 2 is 1, 3 4 is 2, blah blah. blah. Uh Makes this sense. is a a more translucent, just solid green, a uh, slight amount of sheen. Sure. Um Three. It, it Three, was a six so on the two. die, but... Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Roger Ebert gave this film one star. You gave this film five stars. Okay. The first excerpt. The film is like the guy who drives you nuts by hinting at horrifying news and then saying, never mind. There's another thing. The lead actress is asked to do things in this film that require real nerve. She is asked to portray emotions that I imagine most actresses would rather not touch. She is degraded, slapped around, humiliated, and undressed in front of the camera. And when you ask an actress to endure those experiences, you should uh, keep your side of the bargain by putting her in an important film. That's what Bertolucci delivered when he put Marlon Brando and Maria Schneider through the ordeal of The Last Tango in Paris. In this movie... The lead actress goes the whole distance, but the director distances himself from her ordeal with his clever asides and witty little in-jokes. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So five stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this Blue Velvet? You got it. There it okay. is. I was like, <laughs> with the thing at the end about the witty little in-jokes and stuff, I was like, oh, this is Lynch. And then I was like, okay, what Lynch movie um, would have, like, the most? And there was Firewalk With Me, but I'm like, I don't think this is Firewalk With Me. Yeah. Uh, there's just more going on, whereas, like, Blue Velvet is just so specifically, like what these things are talking about you know yeah Mulholland Drive is like not nearly this no yeah no um Um, do you want to hear the second excerpt sure (laughs) uh the movie contains scenes of such raw emotional energy that it's easy to understand why some critics have hailed it as a masterpiece a film this painful and wounding has to be given special consideration and yet those very scenes of stark sexual despair are the tip-off to what's wrong with the movie they're so strong they deserve to be in a movie that is sincere, honest, and true, but the film surrounds them with a story that's marred by sophomoric satire and cheap shots. The director is either denying the strength of his material or trying to diffuse it by pretending it's all sort of a campy in-joke. That's sort of restating a lot of what's in the first excerpts, but, you know. <clears throat> he yeah. hates this movie. He really fucking hates this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now I have two. We if I had two. a coin in here, I would flip the coin. I um, do have a coin in my hand, actually. I I guess you could flip it if you want to do it. I was going to say, it's too bad that I, I actually have them in my purse right now um, at the the zoo. Because m- most of the time that we weren't like doing wedding stuff, uh, we spent at the zoo in D.C. Because where we stayed was like right across the street, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, 
my toddler did get two souvenirs coins um that one was an elephant and the other was a fennec fox um i could flip one of those but i would have to go get it so either flip or i could roll this d20 just to make a different dice um and then if it's if it's um evens it's one if it's odds it's two sure or no evens is two odds is one that That makes more sense yeah um okay and just to describe this is um oh the the d6 also had white letters uh Mm -hmm. or numbers uh this is like an all black fully opaque uh d20 and the the numbers are like gold on it um okay 19 which would be one all right you gave this no Ebert gave this film two stars. Okay. You gave this film three and a half stars. Okay. <clears throat> this is, might be harder for me now. I think you will be surprised. I just have a... It, it, will, it will depend on what he says, but I have like a clearer sense of like my five-star movies All in right. my head than, than other this was, star ratings. This was part of the reason that it was so hard to like find stuff, because it was like, you did rate this movie positively, but not like that positively. There, it was mm-hmm. surprisingly hard to find overlap between like you liked it, he hated it. But anyway, here's the fact of the matter: the movie wasn't made for me. It was made for the people who will love it, of which there may be a multitude. I feel like the grouch of the party, so let me make that clear and proceed with my minority opinion. The plot is a clothesline on which to hang the songs. The movie doesn't much sparkle when nobody is singing, but that's rarely. The stars all seem to be singing their own songs, aided by an off-screen chorus of, oh, several dozen plus full orchestration. So it's a musical. Mm Mm-hmm. Star-studded cast. What one would I have... This is where I just truly don't know what musical I would have given a three and a half to. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... God, I don't know. Um, Would you like... I could give you a hint and tell you what decade this film came out in. Um... Well, wait, 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 wait. Did I... Did I give Mamma Mia three and a half or four stars? I feel like I did three and a half because I think four was Summerstock and Mamma Mia is not as good as Summerstock. Is that is Mamma Mia your final answer? I think so. Two points. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to think of like what musicals would I have rated recently? Like what musicals would I have rated and would have been ones that I would have watched recently? <laughs> um Would okay. you like the second paragraph or the second excerpt sure. here? Yeah. The island is beautiful. Moviegoers will no doubt be booking vacations there. The energy is unflagging. The local color feels a little overlooked in the background. Nobody seems to speak much Greek. And then there are the songs. You know them. You may feel you know them too well. Or maybe you can never get enough of them. Actress's sunshine carries a lot of the charm. Uh, Although I will never be able to understand her final decision in the movie. Not coming from such a sensible woman. Never mind. Love has its way. 
I feel like fundamentally I agree with his review. I just, uh, in my, like, in the way that I give stars, the way that I rate things is, like, with, like, one is reserved for, like, I don't think this movie is that well made, or, like, half star. I don't think this movie is that well made, and I, like, really didn't like it. But, like, once you get into, like, the two to four range... There's a certain amount of me just like appreciating is it succeeding at what it what it's trying to do, what it wants to be, right. you know, not necessarily what is the director trying to do, but like this movie, what does this movie want to be? Like if I am to like personify it in that way, is it succeeding at that? And if it is, it's just very hard for me to go below like a three unless I just think it's like really like repulsive or just not something that like I enjoy at all in a way that I'm like turned off from it. Um, but also I, I pretty much agree with his assessments there of like this movie is not really made for me, but I can appreciate the joy of it. Um, yeah. And a, a lot of the plot doesn't make sense, but I also don't think that's the point. <laughs> so we've got one more, we've got one more movie that both you and Ebert have rated. Okay. And then I have a bonus one that Ebert elected not to rate. You have not marked this movie as seen on Letterboxd, but I would be frankly shocked if you have not seen this. So. Okay. But that's the bonus. We'll do that one next. We'll do that one after the one I'm about to do. Okay. So this is something you have rated on Letterboxd. Ebert gave it two stars. You gave it three and a half, just like last time. Here is the first excerpt. But did I care about the relationship between these two caricatures? Did either one of them have the depth of even a comic book character? Not really. And there was something off-putting about the anger beneath the movie's violence. This is a hostile, hostile, mean-spirited movie about ugly, evil people, and it doesn't generate the liberating euphoria of the Superman or Indiana Jones pictures. It's classified PG-13, but it's not for kids. Should it be seen anyway? Probably. Director and his special effects team have created a visual place that has some of the same strength as Fritz Lang's Metropolis or Ridley Scott's futuristic Los Angeles in Blade Runner. The gloominess of the visuals has a haunting power. Hmm. Hmm. So I I kept thinking when because you've done two that were three and a half that would be Brokeback Mountain because when I watched um the Hollywood Chinese I was mm-hmm. like what did I rate Brokeback Mountain because I f- did I rate that at all and I saw it was three and a half and I'm like I don't know if I trust that um and I thought about deleting it uh like that rating but I want to just rewatch it more recently. Um, but I don't think that's it. Is it Rush Hour? It is not Rush Hour. Okay. Do you want to do it another guess or you want me to um read the next excerpt? I'm I'm feeling like uh adrift with this one currently. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> All the big moments in the movie are pounded home with ear-shattering sound effects and a jackhammer cutting style, but that just serves to underline the movie's problem, which is a total lack of suspense and intrinsic interest. This movie discards the 
campy cultural history of the character and returns to the mood of the 1940s, the decade of film noir and fascism. Hmm. Well, of the character. Mm-hmm. Film noir. It... Can't be cultural history, but we're we're discarding that. Yeah. This is the one that's like finally getting me. Mm-hmm. Uh, is I, I feel like it's a superhero movie. Sure, what would be a superhero maybe. movie that I would have given uh that I would have watched recently enough to rate mm-hmm. on Letterboxd? But also is not like a a Marvel movie that Emily's watched, unless it's an early one that I rated. Because then maybe Ebert had, had, you know, I don't remember exactly when Ebert died. I want to say 2013, but I could be wrong. Yeah, like definitely. um, Same week that Bioshock Infinite came out. That's all I know. Yeah, definitely MCU was happening. So it could be early MCU, but I I don't like hmm oh the other option is I watched Batman when you did it on Gotham Mm -hmm. I watched the like first Tim Burton one Mm -hmm. but is that discarding the campiness I feel like it's campy in a new way but does Roger Ebert think it's discarding the campiness? But Batman is like has a very long cultural heritage of camp. I'm gonna say Bat Tim Burton's Batman. Nailed it. Okay. I was surprised you did not I wanted to give you the hint that he's comparing this to Superman and Indiana Jones, so those would have been contemporary. And Yeah, the- okay. It- and he's drawing a particular like attention to the special effects and the design of the city, you know? Yeah. I mean, some of it is there's like the, I'm like trying to hone in on things as you talk and then losing other details as yeah, I'm then fair. trying to think totally of what movie fair. it could be. Um, totally fair. But also there, I think when the Indiana Jones first came up, I thought that it was talking about the new Indiana Jones. Oh, like, and that sense. referencing older ones makes sense. Yeah. And I know there's been other Superman movies. I don't know when all the Superman movies have happened because I'm going to be honest. Superman is like one of the superheroes I care about the least. Shaking um, my head. Um, yeah. All right. Bonus round. Okay. For, the, for the record, you have six points. Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't know what you win with these points. But it's six out of eight, right? Yeah, six out of eight. I feel that's respectable. Yeah. <clears throat> Bonus round. Uh, so yeah, Ebert did not give this film a rating. Um, and you have not mar- marked this movie as watched on Letterboxd. I would be really surprised if you've never seen this movie, but it's possible. First excerpt. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure why such a massive police force was necessary. Smaller numbers of officers, smaller numbers of officers, 
have successfully flushed killers from attics and directed the traffic at Soldier Field after a Bears game. No matter. They blew the missile, they blew the whistle, and most of the patrons of the theater left quietly, keeping their hat brims low and their collars turned up, for it was a chilly afternoon. The police, alas, neglected to obtain the necessary papers before ma- making their raid, and so a federal judge ruled on Saturday that the town could continue to show this movie. I exercised my constitutional right to see the movie on Sunday afternoon and felt only a little twinge of nostalgia as I entered the theater. In its balmier days, the town showed Orson Welles' Falstaff, Luis Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel, and Babette Bardot's striptease pantomime to Melancholy Baby, all three superior works of art, I would say, to this movie. So... Ebert tried to see this movie and the cops broke it up. Yeah. Um, what would this be? A lot of Chicago in that excerpt also. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, would you like the second excerpt? Sure. On the other hand, the cost is only 33.6 cents per sex scene. While you have to put six quarters in the machine to see a whole movie in the arcades on, say, South State Street, uh, South State, South State Street sounds... Blah, blah, blah. Let me start this excerpt over. <laughs> okay. On the, on the other hand... The cost is only 33.6 cents per sex scene. While you have to put in while you have to put 6 quarters in the machine to see a whole movie in the arcades on South State Street. Sounds like a bargain until you realize that if Gone Gone with the Wind were exhibited at the same cost per minute as this film, it would cost you $36 for tickets uh for yourself and your date. This excerpt is not as good as I remembered it being. The important part is cents per sex scene. Yeah. It... Is... Is this Deep Throat? Yep. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I was just amused by Ebert writing this review about exercising his constitutional right to go see Deep Throat. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I... I don't know if I've seen all of Deep Throat or not. Um, I I just Googled, like, with no context, just Deep Throat, uh, trying to get How'd the that film. How'd that go for you? Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't do an image search, but it is just, like, first result, xnxx.com, second result, pornhub.com, third result, xvideos.com. Fourth result, xhamster.com. Fifth result, redtube.com. Uh, sixth result, wikipedia.org, deep throat watergate. <laughs> Seventh result, punishworld.com, deep throat extreme porn videos. Uh, <laughs> anyway. I mean, I am still kind of just looking for a porno about deep throating. It's just a very specific historic one. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. 
I don't know if I've actually watched all of this movie. I know that I watched the documentary about it that has multiple scenes from it, but, um, yeah. Um, so, so that's the quiz. Do we? That's the quiz. Yeah. We have emails. You sent emails, uh, while I was talking earlier. Two Um, of you, two of you are on fucking notice. Yeah. Put put stairwells in the subject line of your email, please. I'm begging <laughs> you. You know who you are. Zhuo, <laughs> uh, who behaves yeah. himself, writes and asks. Okay, I should clarify. Zhuo does not behave himself, but he does put stairwells in the subject line of the email. So... <laughs> I feel like I'm now inviting him to stop putting stairwells in the subject line, but I'll just stop reading his emails if he doesn't do it. <laughs> um, I guess... I'll, I'll be honest, just... I, was, I was surprised that Joel was the, the one who did behave himself in this way. <laughs> <laughs> Joel... Joel sent us a bunch of quickfire questions. I think some of these are geared toward... Um, watching the dead or alive movies um yeah but joe first question how would you feel about this movie as an adaptation of a fighting game um i don't know anything about the dead or alive fighting games other than boobs and i don't know i don't know how you adapt dead or alive the the mike film into a fighting game at all (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it would basically be the end of the movie, which I don't want to go into detail right now, because we are going to get around to doing these movies. Yeah, we'll circle back. Probably, I think, like, the episode going out September 6th or something it is, is probably the one. When you get back, even if we're not, like, in person, we'll probably watch Birds and record um, that week. But um, Second question, unless... Sorry, I'm cutting you off. Yeah, it would just have to be based on that final uh, scene of the first movie, I think. There's no... You can't adapt birds to to be a fighting game. Um, that's not what that movie's about. Mm-hmm. Um, which would be uh, Guts, Farnese's, and Griffith's favorite movies, respectively. Um, um, do we want to limit us to movies we've done on the podcast? Yeah, let's just limit it to movies we've done on the podcast. Um, because that'll be fun. That's um, his favorite movie we've done for stairwells. God. I mean, there there is a temptation right there to say Rikio. Yeah, I mean, Rikio does, like, that is his deal. That is Guts's like, deal as a person. Yeah. I could also see him liking Lady Snowblood, but... Ooh, I think Lady Snowblood is more up his alley. Yeah. He does appreciate Rikio a lot, though. Yeah. But it's not his favorite. Yeah. But, like, Uh... he has the DVD, or the the (laughs) Blu-ray or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um... Farnese, on the other hand, really likes um, 
she might like Itumama Tambien. She might really be into Itumama Tambien. Um, I'm, I'm still like getting to know her, but I can maybe see that. Um, I feel like I, I have the s- least uh, clear answer for her of the three we've been given. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say she really likes Itumama Tambien. And Griffith really likes... I could also see her liking uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Ram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Griffith really likes... Um... Mm. Is Wings of Desire too on the nose? <laughs> you... Yeah. Um... To, you've obviously read more than me too. Uh-huh. Um so maybe there's like more developments I don't have. There's a part of me that feels like there's a certain like uh I don't that that Wings of Desire is like uh too full of like just a hope for like human experience in a way that like he he is questing beyond that yeah um what if griffith just really likes face off i did think about face off because i think he does like the the kind of uh rivalry between men that's happening there he likes the rivalry and he's like listen i've got a long day of being king you know yeah. I, I, I'm I a busy fucking person. Sometimes I want to watch Face Off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine um, Griffith, like, you know, it's 10 p.m. and he's just turning his brain off. I feel like that's a dude who's always deep in thought. But I think if he could, if he could let Face Off into his heart, I think he'd really enjoy it. I think he also has a certain... Um, he watches Emma and, and like has a certain connection with yeah with <laughs> he like gets that bitch <laughs> yeah he, like f- throughout the entire movie he's just like no nah, she's just right just, she's just doing everything right here she's yeah you do just have to play every single person in your life to get exactly what you want that's just. I'm so glad to see a movie that just understands this. So many other movies are about how you have to like sacrifice yourself for the greater good or whatever bullshit. I no, will do no you such just thing. Orchestrate every single person in your life around becoming who you need them to be so that you can be the person that you want to be, which is in control of everyone. Um and, and just like fully obtaining everything. Yeah, this definitely is read of the movie, and he loves it. <laughs> um, um, not a movie we've done for the podcast. Griffith would really enjoy Amadeus. Griffith yeah. would really enjoy Amadeus. <laughs> um, I think you have an appreciation for Cure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's weird in that Griffith is one of the people who I can least imagine having the time to just sit around and watch movies. And yet I also just imagine being extremely knowledgeable about lots of movies. Right? Yeah. Because he just needs to be the person who knows a lot about movies. 
even if you never see him watching movies. <laughs> there's a there's a bit in Chainsaw Man where Makima takes Denji and she goes they go and watch like 10 movies in one day. And she only likes one of them. Like she thinks that like the other nine are all terrible, but she's like, well, I really liked that one. And so it was kind of worth it. I feel like, I feel like Griffith is the same way where he sees a bunch of movies, thinks these all suck. All of these suck. Oh, this one, this one had some, you know? Yeah. But like, Um, I also feel like he just is a person who needs to be able to like have smart opinions about movies. Yeah. And like, uh, say those in public places where other people are listening to him talk and give his smart opinions. Um, uh, Joao's next question: Which actor should have the honor of doing a remake of Face Off with Orson Welles? So, is this... Orson is are they trading faces with Orson Welles, or is Orson Welles directing? I'm assuming it's trading faces. I assume that he is directing and trading faces. Okay. Yeah. Joseph Cotton, easy one to fill out. Yeah. I mean, Joseph Cotton (laughs) is the one who Orson Welles would cast. Yes. (laughs) That is who would be in that film. In a way where it's hard for me to conceive of another answer because that's just who he would cast. (laughs) Yeah. Like, some other actors could have, like, should have the honor. Uh But Orson Welles isn't going to cast them because it's not his friend, Joseph Cotton. (laughs) Yeah. Also, that movie would rock. Yeah, they definitely know each other well enough to do that. That movie would fucking rule. (laughs) I uh, I was going to try and think of another answer. I'm not going to. The the correct answer is really fucking good. (laughs) Um, I guess something else just... You go. Well, so the the thing that dropped into my mind that um would be funny would be Maurice LaMarche. Um mm-hmm. the the voice actor primarily known for doing brain in Pinky and the Brain, uh, which is just him doing his Orson Welles impression, but as a mouse. Right. Um and that would just I think be kind of funny to to have um. those because what would be funny about it is that Maurice LaMarche could do the Orson Welles impression, but then Orson Welles would have to act like normal voice Maurice. <laughs> <laughs> that's the part that's funny about this to me. <laughs> um, I have another, I have another pitch for you. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm going to narrow down the exact year that I want this to happen even. Um, so I just need to see, um, okay. What, what's a year? Okay, 1973 is F for fake. Let's say 1972. Yeah. The year is 1972. Orson Welles is playing, um, Caster Troy, obviously. And, and, and playing, um, Archer is none other than William Shatner, fresh off of uh fresh off of doing Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just amused by the idea of 70s Shatner and 70s Orson Welles in the same room cuz I can't really yeah. conceive of that. <laughs> I think I think that movie like production would halt when the two like actually threw hands. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> they would just hope that they got some of them throwing hands on film so they could try to use it in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, last, second to last question from, from Zhuo. Um, who does Orson Welles, who does Orson Welles main on Marvel? Um, I have not played Marvel three in a very long time. Yeah, I've I've haven't played Marvel two in even longer. <laughs> well, and so part of this too is that we need to do the 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 full team comp. Yeah, right. It's three characters here. So, um, I did play MVC three back in the day. Um, I've talked about this. I think previously on this podcast that I like went to a event for showing it before it was released where, where I yeah. got to play it and stuff. Um, so I might be able to answer this here. Um, I'm just, I'm just like looking at the list to make sure that I'm remembering everyone. Um, I think, Ooh. So one is that I don't think Orson Welles is that concerned with like actually having a good team comp, so I'm not going to concern myself with that. Yeah, I thought about Doom because Doom is like a like one of those characters you see in every tournament uh for MVC3 and then I was like one, I don't think that Orson Welles cares about that. And two, I think he would he would view Doom as a pompous ass. I do think I think the high tier um, at least at like some points, uh, character that he might have on the team is Sentinel. Sure. Um. Yeah, I see that. I think that he might enjoy Sentinel as a like. Mm-hmm. Um. Definitely is doing like I'm not gonna pick all of the the different color options, but is is not doing the normal color for any of them. Mm-hmm. Um. I m- maybe Albert Wesker. Sure, I see that. Yeah, I'm I'm like debating on this, but um, I think of like Capcom characters. That's one that really stands out. Um, and then I think Tronbon. Yeah, totally. Because Tronbon's just got that like uh a little bit of that like I'm just here to fuck up your day a little bit. Like I'm just gonna have the little uh the little robots. Um why am I drawing a blank on what they're called right now? The the serve bots. I'm gonna have those just like going around on the screen just being annoying, and I think that like Orson Welles would just really delight in having those little serve bots and just like annoying people with Tronbon. So um Yeah. That's some... I just sent you cute art of Tronbon. I just think yeah. it's cute. Uh, I love Tronbon. She's great. She's great. Uh, last question from Juo. Uh, a non-live action adaptation made by Lin-Manuel Miranda or Kevin Feige? 
Kevin Feige because Lin-Manuel Miranda is going to try to do the music and it's not going to be good punk music, whereas Kevin Feige's not going to try and do his own fucking music. Um, he's just going to produce the damn thing and hopefully the whatever director he gets, it's still not going to be the best live action, but hopefully that director can actually like pull some some decent like, you know, music for for blast and things. What what Marvel ca- what Marvel character is now crossing a what is the post credit scene uh for Nana? Oh. I assume I assume this first movie is like adapting like loosely adapting let's say like the first 6 volumes or something. Just Nana and um Nana and Nana, like, living together. You know, nothing of, like, after they move out and shit. Yeah. Um, It might go slightly beyond, like, the the Japanese live-action movie, but it... I don't think it's just gonna... This first movie's not gonna touch the Takumi stuff. It's it's just not. Um, Uh So... What would the... Uh, part part of me is like Loki because Hachi would definitely uh, of Marvel characters. I feel like Hachi would like Loki the most. Oh, for sure. Um, so I could see that. I could see the post credit scene being like. They don't do the part where, um, like, there's the knock at the door and Nana's like, oh, Hachi, go answer. Th-. Or no, where Hachi's going up and there's a knock at the door and, and Nana's like, oh, go answer that. And then it's Takumi opens it. But they, they like, play that scene, but then it's Loki who opens it. I think that's the post credit scene. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ah, oh! because if, if you're a fan of Nana, you, like, know that beat. Um, but now it's Loki and it kind of is subverting your expectations and you're like, now what does this, what does this mean for the MCU, you know, or right. whatever bullshit MCU fans speculate about when there's these post credit scenes. Right. Yeah. But I just like, you gotta at least have the music decent for a Nana thing. Um, and like the hopefully better than decent and Lin-Manuel Miranda is going to want to make his music be the popular music that people like the, the, you know, music that's like central to Nana and it's not, he's not going to do punk. Like he'll try to do punk and it will be the most cringe, horrible shit and I will hate it. So, Yeah. yeah. Um, Ina asks, we got some, some questions. Can can I read these off to you? Because these are about Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, sure. And we'll do Which... like fairly rapid fire. Like answer them as quick as you can. Yeah. Um. So so Ina says I have some questions about Buzz Lightyear. Does he sure. have a dick? Yes. Is he good at sex? No. What kind of people does Buzz Lightyear have sex with? Temperamentally. Uh. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed women who he thinks he's going to build a family with. Yeah, trad wife. He's looking yeah, for trad a trad wife. wife. 
You're looking for a trad wife. So far, I haven't interjected you because I agree with your statements having not seen this movie. Um, final one. Do you think Buzz Lightyear is an egg on hamburgers kind of guy? Sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I like egg on hamburgers. It's, Man, it's good. I'll fuck up an egg on a hamburger. Yeah. Um. Okay. Then, um, uh, continuing on with hamburger questions, do you want to read this one from Hunter? Yeah. Um, best place to get hamburgers in Chicago. You're going to have better answers to this. I will say, um, the pandemic has really fucked up my relation to ha- relationship to hamburgers. Yeah. I'm already, I do not get hamburgers very often because every time I could get a hamburger, I think to myself, I'd rather get a chicken sandwich. Um, but the pandemic has really fucked it up because I really only like a burger when it's hot, you know? Yeah. And for a long time, I was just getting everything delivered or carry out, and it's just not going to be hot. Um, I did actually have my first burger in like a while, like two weeks ago. It was very good. Yeah. Um, I, w- I will be honest. I don't normally go and get burgers. Uh, like go to a, like a, a fancy place to get a burger. Um, if I like want a burger that's just going to fuck me up because that's what I'm in the mood for, I'm just going to get like five guys. But I do have Man, some actual answers here. I, I do really like five guys. Yeah. Um. So one, this is not, I would not say that this is like actually a great burger, but going to like the original Billy Goat Tavern location, which is which is located in the basement of the building that like all the newspapers used to be located in. They aren't anymore, but basically all the newspapers used to be there. Um, and you literally go below uh, like lower Michigan Avenue. So like below the actual mag mile that people go on for all the shops. Uh, so you're like under the street down there uh it's kind of just like grimy and then you like go downstairs even further into the billy goat tavern um and they just like it's just like smash burger style um it's a little bit too dry um they don't give you enough like condiment options at the little bar but they do give you both onion like raw onion rings and chopped raw onion in case you just want a different vibe of raw onion on your burger um You go there, you get a beer, you're just surrounded by, like, newspaper history in Chicago. Um, I can show you so many videos of Studs Terkel in this bar, like, just drinking beer and talking to people. Um, It's not about the burger, it's about the, like, history and the experience of going to that location. Um, That feels really quintessentially Chicago to me, Um, even though it's, like... This isn't the good burger to go get, you know? If right. you want, like, a nice high-end burger or something, it's not that. If you want a good, cheap, like, smash burger, go get fucking Five Guys. It's going to be better than this. But that's not the point. The point isn't that it's right. a good burger. It's everything. Anyway, um, other places. So there's uh, Aucheval. Um, This is, like, a I think an award-winning like burger place uh it's it's like fancier um it's in the west loop i i've never had it but like lots of friends have talked it up um so that's definitely one um 
I've heard of Community Tavern, uh, which, like, again, I haven't tried this one, but I hear that one's really good. Um, and I think the other big one I would say is Big Kids, which is, um, I haven't had their burger, but I've had a few other things from them. Um, their, like, shtick basically is they kind of do, like, food that you would eat as a kid, but they, like, make it as, like, a, a more fun thing for adults. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, they kind of, I feel like they kind of have a rotating menu, but I know that they do burgers a lot. Um, so, uh, I think those are the main ones I would recommend. And then, like, the real thing is, um, Chicago's just a big fucking city, and most of the time you just find the places in your neighborhood that are good for what you want. And so, like, the other answer is Emily usually wants a burger more than I do. And the Mexican restaurant that we go to has uh, hamburguesa con queso. And she'll just get that sometimes. Because <laughs> you just find the place near you that does it the, the best for what you want. Um, yeah. And that's honestly, like, what you're going to eat more. But... Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if anyone is traveling to Chicago and they want a burger, I guess those are the ones I would recommend. <clears throat> I'll also say um, Dollop, which is like mostly a coffee place. Like most of the Dollop locations in the city do not have a ton of food options. But the one really close to me is more of a diner um, that... Like more of a diner than a coffee shop, whereas most dollops are more of a coffee shop than a than a place to eat. Anyway, um, the one near me, I went there recently and got a um, the quote unquote umami bomb burger. Um, which sometimes I go to restaurants and I see like them heavily advertising like umami, and I'm like, you're just sort of trying to sell like this quote unquote exotic thing that isn't even exotic. Um, but this looked good, so I tried it, and it was really fucking good, and it was just, like, a burger with, like, shiitake mushrooms and caramelized onions. It was really fucking good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, which Star Trek character or characters would you most like to get a burger with? Uh, Riker. Duh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Riker. Riker. Alaska's own. I I was like trying to think of cuz again Deep Space 9 is like the the big Star Trek show in my heart it's the one that I've seen the most um mm-hmm. well like I've I've basically seen um all of the episodes of at least TNG and Deep Space 9 and I think a lot of the original series um but like I've watched multiple times Deep Space 9 um mm-hmm. but yeah no it's Riker he, yeah, like I thought I, about. Worf I say this Worf being is... like Riker looks exactly like my dad did at the exact time that we were watching uh, TNG when I was a kid. Uh, but also, yeah, <laughs> like Worf is my favorite character, mm-hmm. followed by probably Data. Um, Picard is certainly up there. None of those people would be as fun to get a burger with as as Riker. Yeah. Riker is a, that's a man who loves an egg on his burger. Oh, I just thought of another, uh, cause I was thinking like 
there are some of the those people who are, I would almost expect to be vegan, you know, oh, yeah, totally. or something. And that reminded me of um, this is actually like kind of in both of our neighborhoods because we have a little bit of. Um, but there's a a place called uh, it's Kalish, um, K A L like apostrophe A I S uh, A or K A L apostrophe I S H. Um, and it's like a, a vegan diner, but they are basically just doing like burgers and fries and stuff like that. And it, it's the one place I've ever gone to where it's like, oh, this is all vegan. That does just feel convincingly like, but also I'm just going to a diner where I'm getting like a greasy burger, um, Mm -hmm. in a way that most of that stuff doesn't hit. So, yeah. Um, that's that's good if you don't eat meat and you want a burger in Chicago. Um, last question from Hunter. Last question of the podcast: What Spielberg movie goes best with a hamburger? Um, we gotta look at look list of yeah Spielberg movies. I feel like Spielberg doesn't really delve into like excess in in this way. You know, mm. like his movies can be over the top but not like I don't think of any of his movies as greasy yeah um Um, I guess Jurassic Park comes to mind yeah um I'm just thinking like I have like I don't have internet I'm I'm uh-huh. staying someplace and there's no internet, but they do have the collected works of Steven Spielberg. I just got a nice burger from literally like around the corner and I took it back and I'm going to eat it. And I'm like, what movie am I going to pop in here? Right. This is like headspace. I'm trying yeah. to get myself into uh, looking at this duel. It could be dual yeah. though. That would be good. Um, Jaws might be fun. With Jaws the burger. definitely. Um, also I could see Hook I could see it's Hook not, it's not excess in this way but I think there's there'd be something fun about eating a burger while watching Hook I should revisit Hook because I remember really disliking Hook like powerfully and all of my friends like it and so I should probably just revisit it yeah um, cause I love Robin Williams. So, um, this will surprise you. Uh, it's a movie about being a dad. <laughs> no. And also having complex feelings about your dad. <gasps> um, Hook is one of those movies that's like weird and messy in a way that is kind of interesting. I think. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but I feel like that goes with the messiness of a burger. I really want to see his new West Side Story. It's just so long. Yeah. Emily wants to see it, too. At some point, we should just watch. Maybe when we're like fully in Twin Peaks mode, it'll be easier. Maybe, yeah. Um, Well, I I think that's it. Do we have anything else? I mean, we have like... I don't have anything else. We have like wrap up. We have plugs. 
Yeah. Next time Jesus, you, this went longer than I thought. Yeah, next time you hear us, we'll be talking about Dead or Alive 1 and 2. May or may not be joined by M. We'll, we'll figure that out. We have not talked to them about mm-hmm. that possibility, you know, if they would want to do it and figuring out dates and stuff, so... Yeah. Um, I imagine they'd want to do it. It's just a question of scheduling. Yeah, it's yeah, it'd be more scheduling. Um, like I know we talk. I talked to Emma about doing something. Um, while you were gone, like we would record the weekend that you're gone, and then it would come out. Um, you know, in the normal slot, and it would just be a me and Emma episode. Um, but like they have medical stuff that's coming up that means that they don't really want to record more so who knows if that would influence i don't know how long that's going to extend Um, so yeah that's look forward to that i think it will be a week from when people hear this i don't know if i'm putting this out like at a weird time or if i'm just doing it next tuesday because we're recording this on a tuesday oh yeah well, now it's Wednesday. We've gone too long, oh, and now yeah. it's Wednesday. <laughs> it is just now Wednesday, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at FoxMomnia on Twitter and co-host. Um, really did not use co-host much while I was in D.C. <laughs> uh, oh, also go listen to my other podcasts. Uh, Ghost Divers and Pondering Bhutan. You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at autumnal. You can go to exportodd.io where you can see links to all the free feeds to our uh, podcasts or you can give us a dollar a month. You can get early access to a bunch of the shows that we do. You can give us five dollars a month and you get access to Pop Town Funk. Um, If you're listening to this Thank you for listening to this long episode that didn't really have a point to it. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Um, you know, I know a lot of export shows have been a little scarce uh, throughout August because uh, of various extenuating circumstances. You you know, if you... Yeah. We talked about it at the top. Um, September, October, I'm going to try and be more committed about like making sure all the shows come out on time and etc., so I would appreciate if you told your friends about this podcast or any of the, uh, our other podcasts that you think they might like. Uh, we don't advertise. So, like, you know, you telling your friends is the only way that other people are going to start listening to this. Uh, and thank you to everybody who has already done that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Word of mouth really is just the way that we spread. I mean, we're, we're on more podcast things right now, but that's not going to drive engagement like you just telling your friends hey yeah listen to this podcast you're your co-worker who watches criterion movies yeah you know <laughs> um anyway let's get out of here yeah but oh i was just gonna be like bye everyone and then i remember that we actually have a sign off it's just been we do too fucking off. long <laughs> okakoro is real Okoro is real.